0: Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. I'm a pastor at Maidenbower Baptist Church in Crawley in West Sussex. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ first and foremost, and Spurgeon is one of the men that I esteem as one who we can imitate as he also imitated Christ. With that in mind, some of us are reading through the sermons of Charles Spurgeon, and this week we're reading sermons 122 through to 128, and each week we focus in on one particular sermon. Now, if you're interested in reading with us, you can join us at Reading Spurgeon on Twitter, that's at Reading Spurgeon, or you can sign up through Media Gratii to a mailing list where you'll see the weekly readings and the week's particular focus. So then, for this week, it's Sermon 122, and the title is Christ About His Father's Business. Christ About His Father's Business the uh, sermon itself is taken from Luke chapter 2 and verse 49. In uh, the authorised version, wished ye not that I must be about my father's business, or don't you know that I must be about my father's business? And the sermon itself was preached on March the 15th, 1857 at the music hall in the Royal Surrey Gardens. So this is that season in Spurgeon's ministry where his uh, his reach is extending. God's blessed him with a great hearing and they're squeezed out of what was itself a reasonably sized building, the new Park Street Chapel, and they're meeting at the Royal Surrey Gardens in order to accommodate the crowds that are gathering. Now, one of the things that delights me about Spurgeon is the way in which he's able to uh, take these various texts and draw out from them relevant relevant and helpful instruction for God's people. He's not as we've said before, not just a a narrow and shallow calvary preacher, and you'll appreciate that there are there's a breadth and a depth in true calvary preaching, but Spurgeon is also eminently practical in his understanding of what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's concerned here uh, about here is the way in which uh, Christ goes about the accomplishment of redemption and in doing so, not only establishes a way of salvation, but also sets an example for us. His first emphasis is on the accomplishment of the triune God in salvation, but he wants to look at the particular way or the spirit in which our Saviour Jesus Christ carried out the work which his Father had given him to do. And this is again one of those beautifully simple sermons Typically, not invariably, but typically Spurgeon's sermons have two or three or four points. Where there's two, sometimes it's a point of contrast, sometimes it's explanation followed by application. The three or four pointers sometimes break down the text. This is one of those two pointers, the spirit of the Saviour as breathed in the words, don't you know that I must be about my father's business? And secondly, an exhortation to labour after the same spirit, to seek to follow Christ in this disposition of heart so that we can say in respect of the work we have, do you not know that I must be about my father's business? So it's really look at Christ and then follow Christ. Consider his spirit and then seek the same attitude for yourself. And so he's going to break it down quite straightforwardly. First, the spirit of Christ, which he describes as a spirit of undivided consecration to the will of God his Father. The heart of Christ was fixed. He was determined, without any distraction or deviation or hesitation, to follow the path that God had appointed for him. And there's a sense of absolute necessity in serving God this mustness, this holy obligation, this all controlling, overwhelming influence, this righteous grasp upon a duty given to him to perform. And so out of that, Spurgeon wants to ask two questions. What was the impelling power which forced Christ to be about his father's business? Where did this holy constraint come from? And then how did he go about his father's business? And and what was it? So you notice here how Spurgeon's really interrogating the text. He's uh, not not. Distracted preacher in that sense. He's not uh, merely a topical preacher using a text as an excuse to talk about a topic. He's asking questions of the text. His points and his applications are coming from a consideration of of the word of God. He is typically reasonably well bounded by these things. And perhaps we need to be a little bit more careful when we accuse Spurgeon of often playing fast and loose with the text. It's not true. He jumps into the text. He's aware of its context. He doesn't turn it into a pretext for saying something different. He wants to make sure he understands it, where it's found, even if there are times where he now says, this is the aspect I'm considering, this is how I'm using it as a springboard or whatever else it may be. But here you've got Spurgeon wrestling with this phrase, don't you know that I must be about my father's business? What then is this impelling power? What's the the force which drives Christ in this? And he has several points that he wants to make it's a spirit of obedience, it's a sacred call that uh, to undertake the work, and it's a vow that lies upon him. So first of all, there's this spirit of obedience which thoroughly possessed him. He took upon himself the form of a servant, but he also took or received the spirit of an obedient servant. Spurgeon talks about his his own sense of consecration, especially as a new convert. I can remember well how I could scarcely abide myself five minutes without doing something for Christ. If I walked the street, I must have a tract with me. If I went into a railway carriage, I must drop a tract out of the window. If I had a moment's leisure, I must be upon my knees or at my Bible. If I were in company, I must turn the subject of conversation to Christ that I might serve my master. And Spurgeon's point is that we're often like that in the first flush of our conversion, but that was the whole spirit of Christ. Now, he he acknowledges that not all of that is necessarily the most wise thing, but he says, in effect, I'd rather have an earnest man that I can channel in the right direction than a careless or lazy man who needs to be stirred up constantly. It was a pleasure to obey God. And that was the very spirit that animated Christ. He loved to do his father's will. And when, when we're in that spirit, when we have that disposition, when we've got that eagerness, we cannot help but ask the question, we must be about our father's business. How can we pursue that? One of... Uh, Spurgeon's predecessors, spiritually speaking, a man by the name of Andrew Fuller, writes a wonderful letter to some of the churches with which he was associated about this same spirit of consecration. And he says, if if things were right in our hearts, the question with us would not be so much what must I do, but what can I do? Not a, a, a sense of obligation with uh, dragging feet and a sense of uh, drudgery but this eagerness, this willingness, how can I serve the Lord my God? But Christ, he says, furthermore, under this same question of the impelling power, had another motive. He had a sacred call to the work which he had undertaken, and that forced him on. Now, says Spurgeon, you may think it's fanatical to talk of a sacred call, but call it fanatical or not, this one thing I will own. The belief in a special call to do a special work is like the arm of omnipotence to a man. He tells us that the men that have done the greatest work for our holy religion have been the men who had the special call to it. I no more doubt the call of Luther than I doubt the call of the apostles, and he did not doubt it either. Now, I think we've got to be careful here, and I don't think Spurgeon is being careless. There are some people, even today, who very quickly dismiss the sense of a call to the work of ministry or a call to some particular labor and service. And perhaps there are some dangers of which we need to be aware. There are some people who are manifestly ill-equipped for something, but are nevertheless persuaded that they have a call to it and pursue it regardless of their inability to do so. Uh, You have people who believe that they're called to the ministry, and every mature Christian who knows them is pretty clear that that cannot be so. Uh you you think of somebody, for example, if you if you know the game of rugby, uh the the guys who play rugby, especially some of the men in the pack, I mean they're about eight feet tall and uh, and you know, pound for pound, they're they're just almost superhuman. And these days even the uh the, the little guys are big guys. Now suppose you had uh, some man who said, I, I'm called to play rugby. I'm absolutely persuaded uh, that this is, is my place in life. And, and you might look at him and you might say to him, yeah, you're, you're five foot two and you weigh about a hundred pounds when you're wet. You may be persuaded that this is the place for you. But these guys, they're going to wipe their brows with you once they've finished running over you. Then they're barely going to notice you. You may have this persuasion, but you are not equipped for it. And in that sense, we've got to be very careful about this super spiritual notion that if I've got this idea in my mind, if, if I feel that this is so, no one can stop me. And here's one of the, the excesses that we sometimes see in the charismatic movement. Uh, in our area, we have, we have church plant after church plant after church plant because in some of the churches around us, you get one man after another who just sticks his hand up and says, the spirit of God has told me. And once you've said that, no one can gainsay you. The idea that that can be tested and assessed and that the church as a whole must have a part in making that clear is, is not really considered. But the other side of this, and I think this is where Spurgeon is so right, is is that a, a conviction that God has put his hand upon a man, and typically that's going to be reinforced and, and agreed and endorsed by a healthy local church, by mature Christians. It won't be a man isolating himself from others, but engaging with others in which that call is felt. And it's those men who are persuaded that they have some work to do. They're the ones who are likely to stick at it. They're the ones who are going to press on because, in the face of all the discouragements and difficulties that will come against an obedient man, they will walk the course which God has given them to do. And so, Christ had this special work. Now, of course, in his case, there was a clarity to that and a distinctness to that to which most of us will never attain. But nevertheless, there is at least a likeness here. And then the third element of this impelling power, that Christ had a vow upon him, in his case, a vow from all eternity. He, being faithful and true, the covenant, the engagement, the suretyship, the sworn promise and the oath made him say, I must be about my father's business. So says Spurgeon, when you make a vow, my dear friends, and do that very seldom, take care that you keep it. Few should be the vows that men make, but they should always be sincerely kept. When you before God or men undertake that something must be done and that you will do it, be very careful, says Spurgeon, what you promise, because once you've bound yourself to that before God, then you have an obligation to keep. And God asks no vow of us but when his spirit moves us to make a vow, we are bound to keep it. Uh, It's a, a voluntary commitment, but once it is made, then we are bound to it. And so Spurgeon warns us to consider this for ourselves, but also tells us that Christ bound himself by this voluntary commitment, this holy obligation. He promised before God that he would accomplish the work that he was given. And these things then lay upon Christ. These are some of the things that drive him onwards. But now he goes on. So what was this business? And he he answers that in three parts. There's example, there's establishment, and there's expiation. So here's a little bit of alliteration uh, to, to help us follow, although I'm not sure it hugely works in this case. But you've got example, establishment, and expiation. So one part of his father's business was to send into the world a perfect example for our imitation. Christ shows us the way that we should go. Christ teaches us what it looks like to live a life for the glory of God. And there have been many good examples contained in the lives of the godly, but at last said Spurgeon, God determined that he would gather all his works into one volume, beautiful illustration, and give a condensation of all virtues in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything he was and did as a holy man, you can safely imitate. There's nothing in him in that respect that you need to say, I cannot follow him there, I should not be as he is. In his obedience to God, in the spirit in which he went, Spurgeon's not suggesting for a moment that we can lay down our lives in a saving sacrifice for others, but the whole spirit and disposition, the the consistent and principled holiness of life, Christ is worthy of imitation in all. Never once, he says, did he swerve from that bright, true mirror of perfection. He was in everything as an exemplar, always doing his father's business. And so, not only an example, but also establishing a new dispensation. He is uh, establishing the gospel, he is bringing us into the age of the new covenant. Now, Spurgeon is not a dispensationalist in that sense, and we shouldn't imagine that he's using the language in that way. But there is then this this newness. He establishes the word of God. He fulfills the prophecy. He is establishing the gospel by teaching us that he is divine. He is establishing the gospel by teaching us that he is human. He is gathering the apostles so that they may go out. He is teaching a woman when he sits at the well, that she may teach the whole city of Samaria the way of salvation. He is laying the foundation uh, for the preaching of the gospel. He is carrying out that work in himself and he is ready to send others to do it also. And then having done that in his living and in his teaching, in his preparing, when he comes to the climax of his labor, he does something which no one else could ever have done, the great work of expiation, the putting away of sin by his sacrifice. It was his father's business that made him sweat great drops, drops of blood. It was his father's business to have his back ploughed with many gory furrows. It was his father's business to by which he pricked his temple with the thorny crown. His father's business made him mocked and spit upon, made him go about bearing his cross, made him despise the shame when he hung naked on the tree, made him yield himself to death though he needed not to die if he had not so pleased, made him dread the gloomy shades of Gehenna and descend into the abodes of death, made him preach to the spirits in prison, took him up to heaven where he sits at the right hand of God, doing his father's business still. His father business makes him plead day and night for Sion. You see how he shifted here from the completed work of salvation in his sacrificial death, to the ongoing application of that salvation. It's the same heavenly business that shall eventually make him come as the judge of quick and dead to divide sheep and goats. The same business shall make him gather together in one all people who dwell on the face of the earth. All glory to thee, Jesus, thou hast done it. Thou hast done thy father's business well. Spurgeon, as it were, steps back a moment and he's got this view of salvation accomplished in the past, applied in the present and to be completed in the future so that the whole work of redemption in all its parts in our experience and in history, this is what Christ has done and is doing. This is the nature of his work and he's done it, remember, as a man who's possessed of the spirit of obedience, the son of God in the flesh, doing his father's will. A man with a sacred call upon his whole being and a a man who from eternity as the eternal Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, has undertaken, has made this commitment, this holy divine vow to accomplish salvation. And so he shows us how to live. He establishes the gospel in himself and he lays down his life to accomplish salvation and continues to work out his saving purposes to the very end. This is the Christ who has done his father's business, who has accomplished the divine purpose. That's the example, says Spurgeon. Look at that man. Look at the the son of God incarnate. Look at him as he accomplishes all that the father has put in his hand. And he says then, are you ready to imitate that example? That's the standard that we are to pursue. He asks, can you tell me why Christianity spread so much in primitive times, that is, in the earliest days of the church? It was because holy men counted not their lives dear unto them, but were willing to suffer the loss of all things for Christ's sake. And he asks that in a context in which he says in his own day, why is it that Muslims are so willing to sacrifice for their religion. Why is it that uh, Islam has spread from its earliest days under Muhammad, an imposter who stood up in the streets to preach? And he says the man believed it and was in earnest. And we might ask the same today about some of the cults which are characteristic of our societies. We see the labor they put in, the investment that they make, the the sacrifices they're ready to offer. Now, sadly, tragically, they are doing so because they think they are earning salvation by it. But Spurgeon's point is, if that's what you can do as as a mere work for salvation... How much more if the work of salvation has been done for us? Why does the Christian faith in these days spread so little? Pardon me, he says. It is because the professors of it do not believe it. Believe it? Yes, they believe it in the head, but not in the heart. Where is true devotion to the cause? If we had it, God would bless his people with a far greater increase. I am persuaded. He says, and he's he's putting the finger on our souls. You like to keep religion as a snug investment at a very small interest indeed, which you intend to draw out when you get near death. But you do not want to live on it just now. It's something uh, it's, it's a backup plan. It's a nest egg. It's a safety net but we we live day by day on other things and we keep religion for that time when we think we might really need it. And Spurgeon says that's not the way to live. That's not the way that Christ lived. How few there are of us who are ready to devote ourselves wholly, bodily and spiritually to the cause of the gospel of Christ. And if you should attempt to do so, how many opponents you would meet with. That's the problem, says Spurgeon not just in the world, but even in the church. He says the best of your friends, and and some of us will know this, the best of our friends, if we are truly zealous for God, or even a little, will come to us and say, and very kindly too, now you must take a little more care of your constitution. Now don't be doing so much, don't, I beseech you. Or if you're giving away money, you must be a little more prudent, take more care of your family, really you must not do so or if you're earnest in prayer they will say there's no need of such enthusiasm as this you know you can be religious and not too religious you can be moderately so and so not only enemies but friends strive to hinder your consecration to christ it puts me in mind of one of the saddest conversations i think i can remember as a a pastor of the church which i serve and uh a lady who is no longer in the congregation and I think this uh, this little anecdote will explain why that's the case. She came up to me after a particular service and said, I, I thought this evening went quite well i I appreciated what you said and how you said it and I I responded, well I, I'm I'm grateful for that because I really felt a little bit dull and a little bit slow. my um, uh, wasn't I was a little bit under the weather I I was struggling all the way. And she said, oh no, I think most of us want to pour a bucket of cold water over you most of the time. Now, I'm sad to say that that was really a reflection of her own heart more than it says anything about my commitment. She was just ready to, to drift along. She didn't want people to, to probe her and, and poke her and stir her. She was disappointed and frustrated and annoyed when uh, there was any kind of vigor and eagerness and sadly even if it's not as direct and negative as that we can be in situations where people basically tell us slow down hold back we get weary sometimes of people telling us oh there'll be time enough to do those things you know you're young yet you no no time is short and here's Spurgeon saying if religion is worth anything it's worth everything If it's anything, it is everything. Religion cannot go halves with anything else. True religion must be all. So you, Christian, will never get on well in serving God till you have given all to him. That which you keep back will canker, it will rot. If you reserve the least portion of your time, your property or your talents, and you don't give everything to Christ, you will find there will be a sore, a gangrene in it. For God, Christ will bless you in all when you give all to him, but what you keep from him he will curse and blight and ruin. Perhaps picking up here on some of the, the language of the Old Testament prophets and uh, spiritualizing it properly for new covenant application. He will have all of us, the whole of us, all we possess, or he will never be satisfied. Now, like Spurgeon, I need to press on so that I don't weary you. He answers one or two objections. The person who says, I'm not in the right profession, I'm not in the right line of work. Spurgeon says, you don't need to be a minister to dedicate yourself to Christ. In in my country, you often hear people uh, talk almost in tones of veneration about the full-time Christian worker, as if it's something to be attained to, but the downside is the rest of us maybe don't need to worry so much. No, says Spurgeon. Many a man has disgraced the pulpit and many a man has sanctified an anvil. Many a man has dishonored the cushion upon which he preached. He means the uh, the, the pulpit with a cushion where people would rest their Bible. And many a man has consecrated the plow into which, with which he has turned the soil. He says, wherever you are, Put your religion where it will come out. Whatever God has called you to be and to do, don't imagine that there you cannot serve Him. Another excuse well, I've got no talent. I've got no money. All I earn in the week I have to spend. I've, I've only got enough money to pay my rent. I, I couldn't teach in a Sunday school. I couldn't. There are people who are full of all that they cannot do, but they don't seem to think about what they can do. So Spurgeon says, Have you got a child? Have you got a husband? Uh, whatever your your situation, there are those for whom you can pray and whom you can serve and to whom you can minister. You can do your master's business by lying on a bed of suffering for him if you do it patiently. In everything you do, you can serve your God. If you're a Christian listening to this and you are, are tempted to think you've got nothing to offer, let me encourage you. God has a work for you to do. There's not a member of the body of Christ but has something to offer. And the weakest and the most private investment and endeavor known by God, owned by God, he will use for his glory. Do not say I cannot be about my father's business. You will always find something of his to do. lovely little illustration he uses. The wars of the Swiss. The mothers would bring cannonballs for the fathers to fire upon the enemy and the children would run about and gather up the shot that fell when ammunition ran short so that whether you were male or female, old or young, there's a work for you to do. He says we hate war but we're happy to use the illustration in the war of Christ. And so three applications to conclude, three brief and earnest reasons to serve the Lord. One, because it's the way of usefulness. Two, because it's the way of happiness. And thirdly, because it's the way to glory. You cannot do your own business and God's too. You cannot serve God and self any more than you serve God and money. If you make your own business God's business, you will do your business well and you will be useful in your day and generation. Spurgeon says there are too many selfish Christians – And they're not concerned for the service of God and will never see a great revival in the church or any great triumphs of religion until the Christian world is more touched with the spirit of entire consecration to Christ. There are some who say, I cannot, because they're genuinely fearful and they need to be encouraged. But let us not be those who say, I cannot, and mean more, I will not. I have other things that I want to be doing. Again he asks, do you want happiness? Then be about your father's business. It's sweet employment to serve your father. You need not turn aside from the ways of business to do that. If you're serving God, there will be joy there. There will be delight. God will smile upon you and you will enjoy communion with him in your daily labor. And then finally, it's the way to heaven. My happiest thought is this, that when I die, if it shall be my privilege to enter into the rest the rest in the bosom of Christ, I know I shall not enter heaven alone. What does he mean? He means if we're serving God in our generation and God makes us a means of saving and blessing others, then we will enjoy glory with them. I think it was Samuel Rutherford who wrote to the the church which he served that heaven would be two heavens to him because not only would he be there, but they as his spiritual children would be there with him. What a wonder then to be in an environment where not only do we enjoy the presence of Christ, but we enjoy the enjoyment of others to whom we have been a means of blessing upon the way. And so he says, go out now, and if you are tempted by the world, may the Spirit enable you to reply, I must be about my father's business. Go out, he says, and if they call you fanatical, let them laugh at you as much as you like. Tell them that you must be about your father's business. Go on and conquer, and God be with you. Yes, his last word is to call people to salvation. Faith in Christ is the only way, but he tells them that there's joy here and joy to come in the way of Jesus Christ, serving as he served, following his example, not to attain salvation, but as those who have been saved. Brothers and sisters, what a wonderful, joyful, God-honoring way to live. May God himself, in his mercy and for his glory's sake, give us more and more of this spirit of consecration, that we might say in the same spirit as our Saviour, do you not know that I must be about my Father's business? May God so help us. Amen. My name is Jeremy Walker, and this is a Media Gratii production I hope you've enjoyed From the Heart of Spurgeon. For more information and to read along with us week by week, follow us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. That's Twitter at Reading Spurgeon.